Well, good morning, church. Oh, come on. Good morning, church. Welcome to First Colony. I'm so glad all of you are here today. Are you glad to be here? Are you excited? I'm excited. Yeah, come on. This is going to be... This is going to be a special day because we're beginning a new series today, and it's simply called God Is. And I want to begin this series today, I want to begin this message today with, with this question, and I want you to lean in as we begin, just right away, I want you to lean in, and I want you to think deeply about how you might answer this question, because I believe this, this could very well be the most important question you'll ever be asked and for which you'll ever have to give an answer. Here's the question. What do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? In these days and weeks leading up to Easter, we want to think together about what we think about when we think about God. And what we want to strive to do is as, as best we're able is to, to try to, to, to think rightly about God. And even saying that I'm aware that, that some of you in the room today, some of you may be joining us for church online today, like you grew up with an awareness of God. In fact, there, as you look back over the story of your life, you, you may not can even remember a time when you didn't either know God or know something about God. But there's other people in the room that was not your experience. You didn't grow up with an awareness of God, at least not in the same way. There's more than one person in the room today for whom this is true. You're here, maybe you're watching online, and you're, if you're being really honest, you're not sure if you believe in God. And I want you to know, I'm really glad you're here. There's other people in the room, more than one person in the room, and when I ask that question, what do you think about when you think about God? You, you're not sure, if you're being honest. You're not sure what to think about God. But what I want to suggest today is that whatever it is you think about, whatever it is you think about when you think about God, whether you realize it or not, it has a direct impact. It is directly connected to the life that you live. So what is it that you think about whenever you think about God? I thought it might be helpful to share with you what some kids think about or what they see when they think about God. These pictures are taken from a book by Monica Parker all about how, God, how kids see God. Check out this first one. I love this. This is a picture by Angus, age five, uh, who sees God as a superhero. You like that? I kind of like that. I mean, he can do anything. He's there when you call him. He's there to help, to come to the rescue. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty cool picture of God. How about this one? I love this one. This is a picture by Gabby, uh, age nine. God has big ears. You wondered how God can hear everything and everybody all Now you know he's just got really big ears. He can hear you when you pray. I love that. I love this image as well, this next one. This is Michaela, God at his cloud desk. You always wanted to know, how does God keep tabs on everything? and everything? Now you know. Now he's in the cloud. He's got it. Uh, or this last one, maybe my favorite. This is Olivia, age 12. Uh, God smiling with giant thunderbolts in his hand and apparently an unusually large amount of hair under his arms. <laughs> I don't know what to do with Olivia's image of God or where she got that, but there you go. What do you think about? What do we think about when we think about God? 
You know, the truth is, the reality is, we can laugh at these images and these pictures, but if we want to be honest, the truth is any picture, any image that we come up with, however it is we imagine God or picture God, every one of those pictures, every one of those images falls painfully short, doesn't it, of trying to to imagine the reality and the greatness and the awesomeness and the, the splendor and the indescribable nature and grandeur of our great God. And I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem because whether you realize it or not, whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think what happens for so many of us, maybe it happens for all of us, is that there comes a point in our life when we realize we just can't conceive the inconceivable God. We can't comprehend the incomprehensible God. We can't envision the invisible God. So you know what we do. We trade in the indescribable God for one that we can't describe. We trade in the invisible God for one we can actually see. We trade in the uncontainable God for one that we contain and maybe just maybe we can even control. And all of a sudden, our vision and our image and the God we worship is not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No, it's, it's a God. But it's not just a God, is it? No, it's, it's an idol. And we may not call it that, and we may not use that language, but that's what it is, isn't it? In fact, the reality is whatever it is that, that we've ascribed value to, worth to, whatever it is that we've decided to let our life revolve around, that has become the object of our worship. And what happens for so many of us so often is, is we've decided to let our lives revolve around things that are tangible, things that are visible, things that are controllable, things that are containable. And I would suggest this is a problem. It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for everyone, everywhere, and every time, and every place because of this one simple reason, yet eternal truth. Anytime your life, my life, revolves around anything other than the God of the universe, we will be unable to experience the abundant life God created us for and that Jesus has invited us into. So how in the world can we come up with an image of God that will allow us not only to see him rightly, but allow us to see ourselves rightly, and maybe just maybe allow us to see the world rightly? I, I believe this is true, that the only way to do that, the only way you and I can consistently and consciously think rightly about God is to get into the very presence of God. The only way we can consciously and consistently think rightly about God is to get into his presence. At least that's what happened about 27 years ago for a man by the name of Isaiah. It was when Isaiah found himself in the presence 
of the God of the universe that maybe for the very first time in his life, he saw God rightly, he saw himself rightly, and he began to see the world rightly. And in fact, I want to share this moment with you this morning. If you have your Bible, your scriptures with you, let me invite you to open up to Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe you have the Bible on your device in front of you. Grab that and turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. And let's lean in and take a close look at this close encounter that Isaiah has with God. Here's how the story begins. Isaiah 6 verse 1. Isaiah writes, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. And he was sitting on a lofty throne in the, the train of his robe. It filled the temple. Now, here's what you need to know about Uzziah. Uzziah had been king in Judah for some 52 years. That's a long time, folks. And during his reign, Judah has, had enjoyed incredible stability and security and prosperity. Things had gone well. He was a good king, by and large, for the people of Judah. But now, but now the king has died. And you know how this works. When the king dies, there are questions. Whenever there's going to be a transition of power or even the possibility of a transition of power, there are uncertainties and there are fears and there are doubts and there are questions. Even in this country, right, we're coming up upon a presidential election, so we understand what this tension feels like. Whenever there's going to be a transition of power or a possible transition of power, there's this feeling of uncertainty and what happens if and what happens when and now we have doubts and concerns and fears and questions and we we just don't know what the future holds this is what the entire people of Judah are feeling in this moment because Uzziah their king has died who's going to protect us now who's going to reign over us now Who's going to provide that stability and that security and that prosperity we've enjoyed for the last 50 plus years? Who is going to sit on the throne? And so Isaiah has a vision. You know what Isaiah sees? He sees a throne. But this throne, it isn't like any other throne. This throne, well, it existed from before time began. And this throne, by the way, it will still exist when time comes to an end. This throne is unlike any other throne. And by the way, this throne, there's no question about who is seated on this throne, unlike the throne that King Uzziah sat on. There's never been a transition of power on this throne. There's never been any doubt or fear or worry or concern about who is going to sit on this throne because this throne has always been occupied. In fact, it's never not been occupied. There's only been one who has ever sat on this throne and who will ever sit on this throne. And his name is the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah, what does he see when he has a vision of heaven? He sees the throne room of the temple of the living God. And there on that throne, what does he see? He sees the Lord seated on the throne. And watch that. He's not standing up. He's not walking around. He's not pacing the floor. He's not stressed out. 
He's not worried. He's not concerned. He's not, he didn't have any questions or fears or doubts. Sure, Uzziah has died. He was a good king, and now his throne for the moment is vacant. But the throne of heaven is not vacant. It has never been vacant. It will never be vacant. The king of kings and the Lord of lords is seated on this throne. And this is what Isaiah sees. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees the, 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 the hem of his garment, the train of his robe has filled the temple. Just imagine that. Imagine if today there was a, a throne up here on this stage and a king seated on this throne and the train of his robe, it filled the stage. I mean, that would be something. But it didn't just fill the stage. What if the train of his robe filled this entire room? That would be something, but not just this room. Imagine if the train of his robe filled this entire building. Isaiah sees not this place, not this room, not this house. He sees the temple of the living God, the throne room of heaven, and it cannot contain the uncontainable God. It can't even contain the train of his robe. It fills the entire room. But that's not all Isaiah sees. He looks up and he sees, verse 2, Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And then Isaiah heard something. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What do the angels of heaven think about when they think about God? One word. Holy. And they sing this word on repeat. Holy, holy, holy. Church, say those words with me this morning. Holy, holy, holy. One more time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The earth is filled with his glory. This is the word the angels use to describe the indescribable God. Now somehow we've managed to like completely void that word of any meaning, haven't we? I don't know about you, but if something crazy happens, me and my son are watching a game and somebody makes an unbelievable play, I might say something like, holy cow, what does that mean? Or holy smokes or holy moly. I have no idea where those phrases came from. We say things like this, don't we? I don't know why. I don't know where they, I don't really care. It doesn't matter. This morning what I want to do is reclaim. Can we reclaim this word used to describe the indescribable God? That word holy in the original language, you know what it is. It's the word kadosh. Say that word, kadosh. Say it again, kadosh. You're speaking Hebrew this morning. Good job. This is the word the angels speak around the throne of the living God. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And it literally means set apart. It literally means sacred, clean. It's this idea of being holy, other, completely set apart, totally different. This is who God is. 
He is holy. And the angels, they say it on repeat three times over and over and over again, trying to somehow articulate how overwhelmingly true this attribute is of the living God. He's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah hears the angels sing this song, the worship of heaven on repeat. Maybe you thought worship started at 11 a.m. today. I got news for you. The worship of heaven is unceasing. And oh, by the way, it is unending. Whenever you and I gather in this place to worship the living God, we get to just join in with the worship of heaven that is already happening. We get to sing along with all the angels and echo the praise of the Almighty God who is seated on the throne. That's what happens when we come to worship. Amen. We join in with the worship of heaven that is unending, that is unceasing, that continues on and on and on. Isaiah hears the worship in the throne room of heaven. And then he sees something. And then he, he smells something. And he feels something. Verse 4. Their voices, the voices of these angels singing holy, holy, holy. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with smoke. He feels the ground shake beneath his feet. He smells the smoke in his nostrils. Then he sees that smoke rising and filling the temple of the living God. And when that happens, do you know what Isaiah says? Verse 5. It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king the Lord of heaven's armies. And it's in this moment, I believe, that maybe for the first time in his life, Isaiah sees God rightly. Isaiah sees himself rightly. And as you read this story, Isaiah sees the world rightly. It's in this moment that Isaiah is crystal clear about who he is and who he is is not. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He hears the angels' song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The foundations shake beneath his feet, and Isaiah confesses, I am doomed. I am ruined. I am undone. I am a sinful man. Now just notice, he doesn't say, he doesn't say I'm worthless. He doesn't say I am unworthy. Sometimes we say things like that, and I think we mean well by it, but that's not what Isaiah says. He doesn't say he's worthless or that he is unworthy. No, Isaiah sees God rightly, but he also sees himself rightly. And Isaiah's view of God and his view of himself is going to shape the rest of his life and, by the way, shape his calling. Just like your view of God and your view of yourself shapes the way you see yourself and the way you see your life and your calling. Isaiah has a high view of God. And because of that, he's able to see God rightly and see himself rightly. In fact, if, if, you, if you don't have a high view of God, it, it may be because you have a high view of yourself. And it's impossible to have a high view of God 
if you have a high view of yourself. That's not to say you should think less of yourself or lower of yourself, so to speak. It's about seeing God rightly and seeing yourself rightly. No, you... Don't ever forget, you are created in the image of God for the glory of God. That is who you are. And the really good news for you and me is we know something that Isaiah didn't know. We live on this side of the cross, so we know you know. If you don't know, let me tell you so you do know. You are worth it. You are worth the price God paid, Christ paid for you. His sacrifice at the cross proves just how worthy you are for God so loved the world that he gave. Christ died for us. To think of yourself, to think of myself as worthless or unworthy is to somehow diminish the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. Let me tell you, you're worth it. You're worth it. Isaiah sees God rightly and he sees himself rightly. And what he understands in this moment is exactly who God is and exactly who he is. He's fully aware of his sinfulness. He's fully aware that that he is a sinful man. He lives among a sinful people. And because of that, he is completely and totally undone. And he's fully aware that there's nothing that he can do about his current condition. But the good news is, and guess what? There's always good news with God. The good news is that there is something God can do about his sinful condition. And this is what happens in the very next verse. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and he said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And right here in a sheer act of grace and compassion, God does for Isaiah what only God can do For Isaiah, he forgives his sins. Why? Because this is who God is. God is a forgiver. God is a healer. God is holy and God makes his people holy. And right here in this moment, Isaiah has his life changed for the rest of his life. And now because he's able to see God for who he is and see himself as he should, he's able to step into the life that God had created him for. And so this morning, we could keep reading the story. I wish we had time to. I want to invite you to keep reading later today and dwell on the story. But this morning, what I want to invite you to do for these last few minutes is just to to dwell right here on the holiness of God on the holiness of God. And just imagine for a moment what you would do if you came, just like Isaiah, face to face with a living God. What happens when you come face to face with the holiness of God? There's a picture um, taken by the Hubble Telescope in 1995. They call it the Pillars of Creation. Take a look at this. I love this image. 
Uh, that title, that name, the Pillars of Creation, is actually a phrase lifted out of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon that he preached in 1857 in London. Scientists took that phrase out of that sermon. Don't you love that? To give this image a name. They call it the Pillars of Creation. When scientists look at this, they see this collection of newly formed stars and gases and dust and outer space. And they, they took this picture. It's, they say it's some 6,500 light years away from where you and I are sitting today. And when scientists looked at this and they, they saw this image, you know what they saw? You know what they see? They see these pillars kind of put in place in outer space. They call them the pillars of of creation. And you know what? I think they're right. I like that. You like that title? I think that's pretty good. This is apparently uh, pictures of thousands and thousands of stars that exist in what they call the Eagle Nebula in the Serpent's Constellation right here in the Milky Way galaxy in this universe, right? So, so this is in our neighborhood. I don't know if you knew that, but it is. It's 6,500 light years away. And this, by the way, this is a pretty amazing picture. Somebody say amen. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, amen's not the right word. Just say, oh, yeah, that's a good one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's better. Yeah. Well, what's really cool is in 2021, NASA launched another telescope. Some of you probably know more about this than I do, the James Space Webb Telescope. It has even better technology. It can use this, these infrared you know, cameras and sensors to pick up you know, even different dimensions to see the different you know, angles and depth of quality of picture. Take a look at this. This is the same image taken by the James Space Webb Telescope. Look at that. How awesome is that? Yeah, wow, that's a good word. Let's use that one. Say wow. Wow, that's just incredible. And you look at that. Scientists look at this. I look at this. You look at that. And it's hard, isn't it, not to see the handiwork of God. You know what some people even see when they look at this picture? They see the hand of God. Wow. That, I don't know if you caught it, 6,500 light years away. You know, how, you know how far away one light year is? Six trillion, about six trillion miles. So I don't know how you do this, people. <laughs> oh, six trillion miles away, that's one light year. This is 6,500 light years away. And oh, by the way, the same God who set the, the pillars of creation in place in the Milky Way galaxy, some 6,500 light years away from where you and I are sitting today, he created you too, and he knows your name. The same God that doesn't need a telescope to see this image that is 6,500 light years away from where you and I are sitting today can see inside your heart, and he knows what you're going through. He is intimately aware, and I don't know if you know this, but he is actively involved in the details of your life. Is it any wonder the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is who God is. Our God, your God, is a holy God. And how do we respond to a holy God? There's only one way, in worship. And that's the invitation this morning. If I could ask you, if I could invite you, if I could challenge you to do one thing this week, it would simply be this. 
Get into the presence of God. Get into his word. Spend time in prayer. Worship him in private. Come together with God's people and worship him together in public. Let's get into the presence of God. Because we, when we get into the presence of God, there in the presence of his holiness, we can see God for who he is. We can see us for who we are. And we can see the world as he wants it to be. And we can live into the abundant life he created us for and that Jesus himself has invited us into.